3: Hi guys, and welcome to another new Monday episode of You Need Therapy podcast. My name is Kat, and today is a good day to be listening. Before we get into anything, and before I introduce our guest for today, just a quick reminder that this is not therapy, even though I am a licensed therapist, this podcast does not serve as a replacement or substitute for that. However, it could benefit you, and it could benefit your pursuit of whatever mental health journey you are on. And I hope it does. So today's guest is Erin S. Lane, and she is a writer, a theologian, and someone other than a mother, which is also the title of her new book, which we talk about today. She holds a bachelor's degree from Davidson College and a master's degree from Duke Divinity School, both with a focus on gender studies. And she's freaking amazing. This was one of the conversations where I like really wanted time to slow down. I kept looking at my clock and I was like, dang it, I only have 10 more minutes. What am I going to ask? What am I going to say? I got to prioritize. And I just wish I could have had such a longer conversation with her. But, you know, our attention spans are only so long and there's other things we have to do in the day. So I couldn't spend four of those hours talking to her, although I would have loved to. But I guess I could do that if... I sit down and finish her book, which this is a different kind of interview because usually if I'm interviewing somebody who has a book out, I will read it before the interview. But this interview got set up really quickly. I had been looking for someone to come on the show and talk about living a life without kids, whether... It was by choice or not. And she came into my inbox at just the right time. So I actually got this email and it was introduced to her on a Monday and then we recorded that Friday. So I didn't have enough time to read her book in those four days, but I did do enough research where I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be such a good conversation. So now I get to continue that conversation and finish her book. Anyway, just like I talked about in the recent Singles podcast, the one that was titled Single People Are Not Second Class Citizens... I wanted this to be a space in this conversation to be a space to offer more information around the possibility that there is more than one way to live a desirable and a good life. Something that I'm taking away from this conversation that I hope you will as well is the continued necessity to find a space to ask questions and wonder and get curious rather than to just accept everything at face value. I really hope you love Erin as much as I did and I am pretty sure you will. I don't know how you wouldn't and you can get her new book anywhere but she did suggest if you have a local bookstore to go there and get it there and if they don't carry it, request that they do. Again, that book is called Someone Other Than a Mother you can follow her on Instagram. She has a newsletter you can sign up for. I will post all the links to that in the show notes. She's taking a break from Instagram right now, but you can still follow her regardless if you want more of her. So I want to just get to it. And here is my conversation with Erin. Erin, welcome to uni Therapy. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you. And this is different than most podcast interviews I do because I think I read the email about you on Monday and then scheduled this for Friday. Cool, cool, cool. Um, so I am excited because usually I like read people's books if they have a book that they're promoting um, before I talk to them, but I just know about your book. So I'm excited to get to talk to you and then read it. But I want to start, if you don't mind... I'm going to give you a chance to introduce yourself. But I really want to start with what I read where I was like, oh, I want to talk to her immediately and then go from there. Is that OK? Yeah, let's do it. What drew you in? OK, so this is what I read. And I was like, oh, this sounds like somebody that I need to have a conversation with. And it, uh, it was just part of the email that I got for anybody who's listening. It just was describing her and about the work she does. And this is the part that really stuck out. And it says, theologian Aaron S. Lane flips tired sayings about motherhood that claim women don't know love until they have children. Someone other than a mother overturns common social scripts about motherhood and inspires women to write their own stories. Lane grew up being told there was no love as strong as a mother's love. As a young Catholic girl growing up in the Midwest, she was given two options for a life well-lived, mother or mother superior. She could marry a man— and then mother her own children, or she could marry God, so to speak, and mother the world's children. Both were good outcomes for someone else's life. Neither would fit the shape of hers. So as soon as I read that, I was like, there is so much inside of everything in that, like those are like five sentences or something, but there's (laughs) so much in that. And I want you to talk about what kind of like sprung you into writing this book but my first question that I want to start with because as a therapist and somebody that doesn't I'm in my 30s and I don't have kids I sit with so many people of all different walks of life and so many of my clients which I don't know if this would surprise people or not choose not to have kids like intentionally and there's often this like battle of having to like defend themselves or constantly question did I make the right choice because there's not any content in the world that is saying what you're saying I think and so it's really hard to continue to like almost validate yourself that you're making the right decision so I want to start with this yeah I want to start with this because I think this is important when and how especially in the in the way you were brought up Did you recognize maybe I don't want to have my own kids or even think that like, hey, maybe I don't have to do this?
4: Oh, there's so much in that question itself. For me, I think how I began to know is because the way I noticed I showed up in the world didn't seem compatible with the way my own mother showed up in the world. My own mother was a single mom for most of my childhood. And fricking loved parenting. Um, She loved us. We were her world. She was amazing. She was like always making up songs, always telling us about how to talk to the Holy Spirit. She was also a nurse practitioner. So I got a very keen sex education growing up alongside the messages I was getting from the Catholic church that my only options were mother or mother superior. So this is the world I'm swimming in where my own mother loves mothering, but she's also telling me about all of the biological things (laughs) that make sex pleasurable, not just procreative make my body, not just gift, but choice and make motherhood out to be a really beautiful thing. If you really love it. Yeah. And I just realized very early on the way I was wired for long bouts of alone time I very much felt overwhelmed by my inner world so much so that I felt like I discerned from an early age that I would have to really limit how much I took on in my outer world to make sense of all that noise. And again, just a really early memory of playing with dolls and realizing, I don't think I want to mother these dolls. I want to organize them like their ideas. I want to name them like their titles to a book only I could write. And so often we look at girls in particular and we're like, does she play with dolls? Does she seem maternal? And we use this as code for whether or not she's going to be a good mother or enjoy mothering. And for me, it was like, no, I had to get curious about the thing behind the thing what's driving my behavior. And most of it was this real desire to quiet the world so I could be faithful to the world inside of me.
3: Okay. As you are speaking. So I had yesterday a two hour um, uh, of my own. I went to my own therapist therapy session. And I went in there like guns blazing because I saw something on the internet. And I am trying to learn how to like, not always get so worked up about things around this nature. But I went in there with this thing that I'd seen about a therapist basically putting this like very black and white, which happens all the time, put a very black and white piece of information to the masses and basically telling the masses, this is what you should do. And if this is what you get, this is what you should do. It was just telling somebody exactly what to do.
4: Hmm. So I'm
3: thinking as you said, like you had, a, you, you grew up in this Catholic church, but you also had this mother that what stuck out to me is talk to me about sex and that it can be something other than procreation and that I have choice. And first of all, that is props to your mother. I feel like that's <laughs> not as common as I wish it was, but I want to read something because in that conversation with my therapist, I was like, I don't understand how, and I was going through this whole like do I delete my Instagram? Do I stop having a podcast? Like how, I don't think therapists should be public figures and like, or should they like, but we're supposed to help. I went through this whole thing, two hours. So at the end of it, it summed, uh, we summed it up. And this is what I ended up, I had written this like (laughs) long, angry, rageful post. I'm never going to post it. It was just like getting my feelings out. And then I, this is what I actually put out there. And I'm reading this because I think a lot of times, not just therapists, but the world is very quick, and not just when it comes to kids, very quick to tell us, this is how you live a good life, this is how you live a right life, this is how you, and underneath a lot of the stuff that I have people come in for, that's one of the biggest issues is people don't realize that they actually have choice in their life, and so they're grappling with like, I don't know, the depression, the anxiety comes from like living in lives that don't actually fit. And then how do I actually know what does fit? And so I just want to read this because I this isn't my words. This is my therapist said this and I wrote it down and stole it. But she said the best way for a therapist to have a public platform is by creating a space for curiosity and conversation. If you're not, you're doing whatever everyone else is doing to them, telling them what to believe rather than teaching them that they have a choice, which is to me what I just heard like your mom was doing. Right. Does that make? Yeah. Yeah,
4: Absolutely. I think for me, there are so me- so many messages that I've received over the years that were not the messages my mom was telling me that assumed motherhood was inevitable, that I would inevitably become a mother and that I would inevitably love becoming a mother and that it would inevitably be the most important thing I did in my life. The thing on my deathbed that like, forget paid work, like forget my dog. Um, like forget sitting against the trees. This would be the exceptional love of my life. And it was almost like there was nothing I could do about it. It didn't matter if I wanted to be this person or not. It didn't matter if I felt suited to it or not. It didn't matter that I was like doing a scan of the world and finding it quite overwhelming and not knowing how I would be faithful to myself if I also we're going to be faithful to biological children. And I think that that's the danger is anytime motherhood or anything becomes an inevitability, what we do is we are sacrificing the inner inventory that I think is what being human is all about for these scripts, um, whether it's your biological clock is ticking and we're like, oh, does, does that mean there's something in me that wants children, even if I don't know it?
3: that creates a lot of weird anxiety. I've never thought about it that way. The that it's like norm. I've never thought of the the script of your biological clock is ticking. I actually love that you said that because yeah, it is sending the message that it's ticking. So I hear like if you want this you better hurry up, but in that as well is well you do want this.
4: Yes, right. There's there's an alarm that's going to go off in you at some point without your consent. Mm-hmm. And it is going to tell you, um, it is going to create a fear in you. It is going to create a longing in you for something that like your consciousness is, I don't know that I want children. I don't know that I'm worried about being 38 and not having biological children, but you hear that message, your biological clock is ticking. And it's hard to not extrapolate from that. Yes. I have a reproductive window where I need to, you know, decide if this is what I want to do in this particular way. It's hard not to extrapolate from that. Yeah. There's something innate in me that should desire children by this point in my life. And I've talked to friends, my friend, Janelle, being one of them who I interview in the book, who is like, I don't want children, but hearing that makes me think something is broken. Yeah. Like if I don't hear the alarm, am I broken? What is wrong with me that I'm not panicked at 38 about my desire for children or my lack of desire for children? And so that's an example of like the medical model being used to, to shame women who don't have or want children. But then they're also, right, religious and cultural scripts that do the same. So in my tradition, be fruitful and multiply is often used as the prescriptive purpose. And when we read that literally, again, what we're doing is sacrificing our inner inventory for this external authority, rather than, again, letting the two dance. We need inner and external authorities, but we also need to let the two dance together and and test those truths out in community, but also in our own bodies.
3: Well, and the, the one that sticks out to me that I've I've seen is the script of like, You'll never know a love like a mother's love, and it's like the greatest love. And I say this all the time. Like, I again, I I don't have kids. Who knows if I even can have kids? I there's no, so that's a whole thing. But I will joke about like I don't know if I could ever love my kids as much as I love my my nieces. Like that feels true to me. Of and there's like this fear of like I'm supposed to love my kid because there, you'll never know a love like a mother's love, and there's there's fear like well what if I what if I don't. And if if I'm not having kids at all too, what am I missing out on? Like I'm going to like die and miss out on the most amazing thing that is created. And so that fear might push me to have a kid and then be like, well, this isn't it.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) so I call that script. You don't know love until you become a mother, the mother of all mother scripts, because I think what all of these mother scripts are doing. And I write about the nine that were most alive in my own particular life and cultural location. But um, I think there are different variations depending on what kind of waters you swam in growing up. But that script in particular I think is such a great (laughs) object lesson in the danger of maternal exceptionalism or this idea that there is something exceptional about a mother's love. Because one, to your point, you can't refute it. Like if someone tells you that and you haven't experienced motherhood yet, you can say, well, I kind of think that's BS. But like, again, they're telling you, you can't know until you experience this thing, what I find really troubling is this isn't a thing that everyone can experience. So I, I hate that there's this idea that, um, tell me friend love is the greatest love of all. And I'll be like, yeah, thumbs up. I agree because everyone can enter into that in their own particular way. But when we say motherhood and particularly biological motherhood does something to a woman, that is so much exceptionally better than anything else in a woman's life and anything else that a non-mother might experience over the course of her life. It's really damaging. And I do think it pressures people into trying motherhood, which is a really hard thing to try. (laughs) And it pressures mothers on the other side of the experience who have heard this script, who become mothers, hoping it is, curious if it is, the exceptional, big, great purpose they've been waiting for, And then you meet your children and sometimes you're like, oh, we're a hard fit. There's something about us that's a hard fit. And this is going to be a hard love. This is going to be a work love. Or I love my children, but I also love my work. And I love the quiet. And I don't love giggles at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Like, I think it shames women on both sides before becoming a mother and after becoming a mother that there is something you are supposed to be feeling. And if you don't feel it, you're missing out or you're doing something wrong.
5: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work.
7: Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I'm curious if you write about this in the book. What about the scripts for men? Because as you said that, I'm, when you said work, I wrote down the word work. So I was like, I want to come back to this. But... More, well, there's a lot of things happening in the social climate right now, which we'll, we might get to. But more and more now, you'll see women having these careers and going after things that they've never been able to go after and all that. And there's also this fight of, like, do I have to choose one? But I don't see that. Now, I don't study this, but I don't see that with men as much. It's like they can have that career and then they can also have kids if they want. But I wonder, from your perspective, why there's such a like, you'll never know a love like a mother's love, but it doesn't feel as strong that like, you'll never know a love like a father's love. And maybe that's because I'm not on that side of the spectrum, but that seems uneven to me.
4: Well, two, two things that I notice uh, in regards to the conversation about mother and father love. One, I do write a little bit about um, how both mothers and fathers are putting in more hours working mothers and fathers are putting in more hours at home and at work than ever before. And so you are seeing a rise in fathers saying that parenting is very important to their identity. It's like one percentage point different than mothers in one of the polls I looked at. And so you're seeing as women more and more find their identity in their work, you are seeing men kind of have a a related intensification of their identity in the home. What's completely overwhelming about that is no one is decreasing their hours anywhere. So there's just this idea uh, more and more, this very capitalist idea that more is better, that you can have it all and that limits are limiting and you shouldn't limit your commitment to work or home based on your own energetic capacities, based on what kind of money you need to um, live well and live healthily. There's just, um, in some ways, the the breakthrough we've seen in uh, a wider gender normative expression in parenting hasn't been met with a narrowing of, okay, if I do want to be more involved at home or I do want to be more involved in work, what am I going to say no to to say yes? That we still are very phobic to do, apparently.
3: Well, I see this in a couple – I have a um, a couple of people in my life who are, who are men who actually take on the more traditional stay-at-home-with-the-kids role, and there's a lot of shame in that that has to be worked yeah. through, and that's, like, for me, I wish it wasn't that way, but hopefully we'll shift that as conversations like this might happen. But I think from – I can speak because I am on this side of things – It does feel like, well, what am I going to have to sacrifice to have kids, which in my head, I just almost said, which is another question. I almost just said, what am I going to sacrifice to have a family, which we'll get to because in my head, a family would be children, right? So what am I going to sacrifice? I don't know that I want to sacrifice anything, at least right now. And so does that make me selfish and is that bad? Does that make me a bad Christian? Am I hurting society or am I helping society? I mean, there's so much, there's so many questions in that when like, why can't it just be like, well, what feels true to you? And I think maybe it's like when people don't know what feels true to them because they've been told certain things.
4: Yeah. But they've also been told that, that parenting is something that's going to happen in addition to whatever else you do. So they don't end up sitting down right to discern parenting because they just think I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And I will also parent alongside it. I mean, that's that's what I see happening with a lot of folks is that like parenting is like this inevitable additive to your life, but it's a gigantic additive that actually, to your point, yeah, changes your commitments to other things in your life and makes those commitments harder to singularly focus on. And, And I talk about this in the chapter on motherhood is the toughest job in the world, how there are a lot of women, and this is an interesting statistic, who believe that their calling is to serve the world and that they actually can't serve the world if they are also serving children under their own roof. And so actually the more likely a woman is to want to provide social value in her work, the less likely she is to become a mother. So the more you kind of see your calling as loving the world, the less likely you are to become a biological mother. And there are researchers who are like, well, that that shouldn't have to be the case. And I'm like, I agree, it doesn't have to be the case. And we also, again, should be very clear about the trade-offs of a multi-hyphenate life. And they are many. And again, going back to this idea that Americans in particular think limits are limiting, I think limits are how love multiplies. And so I think when we are limited, that's when the good stuff comes. When we are limited, like that's when we're able to see like the weird wonky group project of life.
3: Yeah, when I'm not trying to do it all, that goes back to like simple things that maybe we don't apply to our lives as much as we should is like, if you're trying to do everything, you're gonna be giving like 20% to all those things. And if you wanna give like a, like a more of your energy to one thing and do it really well, you can't do it all. But right. I, it's it's confusing because I don't know that this is so much a mother script. But I grew up with these two conflicting ideas of you can be whatever you want to be, which I don't think is true. Um, you, can whatever, <laughs> you can be whatever you can be whatever you want to be, and you can have whatever like go have it all. Like if you want it all, go have mm-hmm. it all. Kind of like American dream kind of stuff. And then also that idea of you can't do it all. And if you want to do something well, you have to choose and focus on that. Like, I think I got those two things constantly. I think I still see those two things constantly. And that is so confusing because it's like, wait a second, which one do I choose? Or am I supposed to choose both? And then going back to you saying like, limits are actually really helpful. Like when you feel like you are limited in the things that you can do, that is what kind of grounds you and creates boundaries. So those things are done well and you can enjoy them.
4: Yes. And I don't know if it's just because I'm a low capacity woman, but like, I'm always thinking about, okay, I've got two good hours in every day. Yeah. What do I know that I want to put them towards today? And it changes. And what do I know? We'll just have to get will have to get some like phoned in presence from me because I don't have limitless capacity. And I think that's one of the reasons I knew that biological parenting wasn't for me for many reasons. But one of them being I really love my bodily autonomy and really love and desire like to steward my energy well. And it is hard enough for me to do that when I'm just taking care of me and this body. And I don't, it, you know, I don't experience shame over that. That feels like saying I have blonde hair. Like I just know this about myself. Um, and so I'm going to move in the world with this knowledge that I love my bodily autonomy and I love myself enough to be faithful to the energetic limits I have which are many and plentiful.
3: Can you speak to either your experience or experiences that you've heard through people that you've talked to about this idea? Because as you were saying that, I was thinking about this idea where going back to that piece of if you choose not to have biological children, then you are selfish. So a lot of times that's what I hear. Like I am choosing to be selfish by, which again, selfishness doesn't have to be a bad thing, but I'm choosing to be selfish by honoring this part of me that says I don't want to have kids and I know that sure. I am limited and these are the things I want to focus on. What is the, did you, was there any internal battle in you or have you heard through the people that you've talked to about the internal battle of I have to now feel like I do these great big things because I'm choosing to be selfish and not have kids so I have to do some great big social work and, and all of that. Because if I don't, then I'm just a selfish person that just wants to have fun and care about myself all the time. Does that make sense? Yes.
4: Oh, yeah. That makes sense. There are so many directions (laughs) my brain wants to go. So, uh, for me, this is not an equivalency. But I was thinking about this as I was writing the book that, like, no one tells me I'm selfish for like not also taking up marathon running. You know, like no one tells me I'm selfish for not like reading my way through all the great literature. And it got me thinking, what is it about this really big thing that if I took on would take up a huge portion of my time in life that for some reason, again, it's selfish not to add it to just add it to what I'm already doing. And so I started to get curious about like the strategy behind calling women who opt out of children selfish and, and learned this whole history about America in particular. When this language first took root, it was like early 20th century. Teddy Roosevelt gives this like infamous speech um, where he says, you know, if you don't have children, you are selfish you are not doing your god-given duty and you are not doing your duty to this country and i'm like ooh ooh so selfish is a strategy of capitalism because in order for men who at that time were expanding from working on the family farm working on the family home this is when you start to see those like victorian division of labor like men were going out of the house in the day to work in the factory or field women now needed to be motivated to stay home and make their home into a haven so that when those men came home, they could sort of comfort themselves that all of those like dirty, nasty things and competitive, aggressive things we did at work are now soothed by this feminine presence in the house. So this is all to say that in America, we told women we needed their unpaid selfless labor in order for men to go to work and be unfeeling women had to feel for their own home. And so like knowing that long history helps me to depersonalize. Now the selfish claims I'm like, no, that's just a strategy. That's just a strategy of American exceptionalism because you want more taxpayers or you want to compel my, my labors that America is like the greatest and biggest and most competitive country, you also don't know what to do with me if you can't motivate me in this particular way. So there's something very dangerous, I think, to America and to capitalism for women that are not motivated by family and men who are not motivated by the work. So one of the most interesting things I found uh, in my research was that the most derided groups historically in the last hundred years have been child-free women and homeless men. And it's because both fail to provide what this country thinks it needs to survive, which is independent men and dependent women.
3: Oh my God. So
4: that's my little oh selfish
8: soapbox. My
4: God. Like, this isn't about me. When someone says this, this isn't about me. And of course, the Christian component, the religious component is, yeah, this idea that the more, the more babies you make, the more disciples you make. And so there's this idea that if you're not making disciples through your womb, then there is some sort of selfishness. But it's sort of the same kind of thinking that um, the latest and greatest happens through numbers and economic power and influence rather than these like quieter ways that we make meaning and love ourselves and love our neighbors. Well,
5: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
4: geekily said but yeah sure (laughs) I yeah
3: I want to see that speech I want to either read that that is wild oh it's a gem that is freaking wild and I guess that like there's this part of me and this even goes back to like me getting heated when I see certain things on the internet that I'm just like these are so harmful and like I think most people in the world like we're all out here trying to like live the best life we can live and like a lot of people who are following certain accounts that actually cause harm are just like looking for help and I did this whole like deep dive into cults and and learning about how like most of the time people would join a cult because they're trying to find a better life or they're trying to find oh. a, a, a better whether community or they're trying to better themselves in some way and they're just like kind of then they can turn into these evil things unassumingly but That all boils down to this part that's like feel so sad because I don't know what I would have thought if I heard that speech back then because I could have been like, yes, that is my duty. Like I will I will do that and I will be this. And like even in my history as growing up in the church, it's like, yes, I will do these things like this is what I and we don't question. We just don't question enough. And as I've gotten older and one of my favorite parts of being a therapist is like sitting with people and just being like, well, let's talk about it like Let's talk about both sides. Like, let's just ask a bunch of questions and see if we have any answers rather than mm. just being like, this doesn't really make sense, but I'm going to do it. Or this person said it and they're really smart and they have power, so they must be right. And I think what you're saying and in, in what you just said is like, there are so many parts of our lives we have got to question because we don't know what we're being manipulated by. We don't know what we're missing out on. We don't know what actually isn't the best for us. Like, going back to, like, taking that choice away, like, I get to choose. And, like, I am the only one, me, who is going to actually know what I need. Everybody else might have an opinion, but I'm the only one that's going to really actually know that. Like, each individual person, this feels like a a soapbox that I, I can't stop getting back on, is anytime somebody else in the world is telling you that they know you better than you, they know what you need better than you, they know what you should do better than you, you've got to run away from that person Hmm. because that's not true. There's no way for anybody to be inside your head. My therapist said this to me, think about all the thoughts you have all day that you don't say all the things that come through your brain. Who else sees those? Who else hears those? Hmm. So how in the world could anybody else know you better than you do? Because they don't get any of that information. And a lot of what you're saying about, kids and being a mother and all that it comes from a place of people saying this is what you should do this is for you this is and then we don't question it so there's no question in that I just think it's like valuable information and a valuable thing to hear of you're allowed to question things even if they seem and feel right at first
4: yes I think this is the best part about being a grown up <laughs> um, is to know the joy and limits of writing your own story within some bigger stories. And I always say that second part within some bigger stories, because I also don't want to like fall on the side that you spoke of earlier of like the American dream, where like you can write your own story and it doesn't matter who you are and where you're from. <laughs> you could be an NBA basketball star, oh. right? Like we're always writing our own stories within bigger stories. And so I think I'm just so fascinated with, okay, if I don't get to write whatever story I want, like I'm always kind of like limited by these bigger stories I find myself in, then I better choose really big, beautiful stories to find myself in, right? And so like, I want the cosmic stories that I put my faith in to be stories that I want to write my little story within that feel like they're big enough and wide enough and comfy enough and squishy enough to move with me as I grow. And for me, the idea that Christianity is pro-natalist or really compelling procreation, whether for evangelical purposes or for vocational purposes is not life-giving. It's not life-giving for me to believe that. And it's not life-giving for so many others to believe that that is the best, for so many others I've spoken with, to believe that that is the best and only way to live a life well-lived. And so I have not like, thrown out all of the cosmic stories. And there's still much about like Catholicism in particular that I found really lovely and beautiful and continue to like compost it within me. But I have chosen again to live my life under the umbrella that other love, not mother love is the highest form of love in Christianity. And so mother love can certainly be one kind of way that you live that out in the world but i see like no and this is the nerd in me like no textual evidence um like no good sound theological orthodoxy even i mean a lot of these ideas that like that your family comes first and your family is your greatest legacy and again by what we mean about that is like your biological children the people living under your own roof is really new it's like it's and when i say new i mean like 500 years old and before that right it was considered like second best to get married and have children, right? That like really celibacy was the way to go. And there were people excommunicated for arguing that marriage and children was like equally good as celibacy. They're like, no, 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 it's not even equally as good. It is worse than, right? And so again, I find history so comforting um, to know that like a lot of these, these things we believe, but particularly the idea that like mother love is the most exceptional and spiritual and holy and sacred love, again, just are are very um, contextual ideas and really, in my opinion, not supported, not supported by a faithful reading of the text. So whenever I tell people the good and glorious thing you are telling people, that when it comes to matters of the soul, like you are the expert, you are the expert on you. Again, it doesn't mean not finding yourself in those bigger cosmic stories. It just means choosing which ones give you life and allow you to flourish. Mm
3: -hmm. I want to make sure we, before we run out of time, talk about this, because one thing I want to tell you that I've noticed in everything you've said, because I see the opposite of this sometimes in these conversations, and not that it's bad, but you're not defensive at all. Like there's no defensiveness around like, I have to like prove that this is the right thing and this is the wrong thing. Like everything you're saying, one is in kindness. It's, you're giving like research and explanation to things, but it's not in this like defensive, like almost like it's a fight or a debate. You're just offering Mm. information and another way to think about things. And that is, I think, so needed because I think a lot of times when somebody who is maybe wanting to be on this other realm of, like, I don't know if I want kids, I don't know if I want my own kids or any of that, it does turn into this like, I have to defend myself because you're coming at me and you're just like, oh no, like this is just another way of thinking. And that makes it really easy to, to digest, I think, for the people that have never even been giving, given that option to think that way and for the people oh. that might not understand it and all of that. So I wanna say thank you for that. And then I want to make sure that I get to hear a little bit about your little journey around choosing not to have kids. And now you have kids. (laughs) Surprise. Yeah. So can you just like, (laughs) I don't know what the question is, but I just want to hear because that's such an interesting experience, especially because you're still writing this book and offering this information. It's still important to you, even though you have children. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that shifted?
4: Yeah. I think this goes back to your selfish question because I think I was pretty resolute pretty early on that I didn't want children. And anytime I doubted that it was because someone else or something else made me doubt that, um, made me feel like I would change my mind. Uh, Made me feel like my biological clock would kick in, made me feel like I'd be really good at it. And if you're good at something, you should do it. (laughs) All of these messages made me think, I don't think I want this, but maybe like there's 5% of me that doesn't know what I want and could change. And sure, like I always hold out hope and possibility that I will change my mind on things. But I think there was some pressure to feel like if I'm not going to have children, I'm not going to have biological children, but I'm also reading my tradition scripture. And it says kind of the greatest love of all is other love to love yourself, to love God and to love your neighbor. Then like, am I, am I really living into that vocation? Because I don't want anyone to be able to look at my life and say that I'm not, um, I don't want to be that child-free stereotype who's just like drinking Mai Tais on the beach, which again, there's nothing wrong with drinking Mai Tais on the beach, but I've got like this little bit of a contrarian spirit in me. And so I was like, I'm going to prove these people. I'm going to prove these people that just because I'm not having biological children doesn't mean my life's not worth something. And I think part of that was really beautiful. And part of that was really dysfunctional, but it led my husband and I to try a number of ways to be available to our community to say, look, like we're not just going to serve ourselves. We really do want to like be in our community. And this is actually the way that we can um, by showing up for our friends that are having kids by sleeping on the floor of the homeless ministry at our church, because we don't have to arrange childcare to do it. And we tried out a number of things that all just felt really thin and flat and like, we weren't being changed by it. The people we thought we were helping weren't being changed by it. It just felt like "Ah, there's got to be something other than these small acts of community service is what they felt like to actually like interrupt our flow and invite us into a grand adventure in the same way that we saw our friends who were having kids felt like they were in a grand adventure. So I think part of it was jealousy and part of it was like, I'm going to prove a point. My husband and I were like, let's be trained as foster parents, which everyone is like, why? Like you knew that you like, didn't really like love kids. And I'm like, well, one, we were homebodies. And so I think there was something about uh, some discernment we did around, I think the best relationships are going to happen in our home. And so how can we keep opening our home to other people? And how can we keep letting our desire to curate, not snuff all the life out of? what kinds of relationships are possible in our lives. So fostering just seemed like uh, we were in a church at the time that was really into it. And so we're like, I guess we could try that. And I'm thinking like, I'm so excited to meet other adults in my community. I'm so excited to meet social workers and guardian ad litems. And I'm just like, people still are like, what? And I'm like, I really didn't compute that like 95% of the endeavor was children. And we were like, it's temporary. And we felt like we were really good at goodbyes. Uh, We saw a lot of families become foster parents with the intent of adopting. And that's complicated because they'll tell you in the training that reunification is the goal. Um, And so we felt like we kind of had this superpower where, yeah, we actually feel really equipped for fostering in a way that everyone else is like, well, won't it be hard to say goodbye? We're like, actually, we're really great at like piecing out or like, wouldn't it be like really hard to have like older kids? You're probably going to get older kids. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what to do with a diaper. Um, And I would love for them to be in school. I would love to still have like five hours alone every day. Um, So there were all of these things that other people thought were deficits that we felt like were assets, which I think is a great way of discerning calling in life is to be like this thing everyone else seems to like not enjoy. I really like and geek out on and think I'm like relatively good at. So to to make this story uh, a tad shorter, we got licensed as foster parents. Our very first placement was three school age girls who were sisters And very quickly, the termination of parental rights happened. And so we had to decide within six months if we wanted to continue fostering in general, if we wanted to put our name in the hat to be their potential adoptive parents, um, or if we were done with the endeavor altogether, because it was was a rough, rough on-ramp. And we did a Quaker discernment committee. It's called a clearness committee I write about in the book. It's a way of listening to your deepest self, but having other people kind of help ask you open and honest questions. And we came out of that time not with not with like a, a valiant like we're gonna do it, but just like I think we're more compelled by the yeses than the noes. And so we ended up adopting these three girls. But again, because they were older, we were like I we we see ourselves and want to see ourselves um, as guardians rather than gatekeepers. Um, we still visit with their birth family regularly. They're still a part of our lives. And we are fully prepared for when our girls turn 18, um, that they get to decide what kind of relationship they want with us and they want with their birth family. So a lot of people thought it was like an about face from our, our calling. We we called ourselves, I called ourselves child-free for the common good, just to like give a middle finger to anyone that thought we were like child-free for like TV watching reasons. I don't know, Right. And, and I just, I wanted to say to people, no, 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 this is exactly, this is exactly what we can do because we don't have, you know, eight other children at home that, that need our attention because I'm a low capacity woman. Maybe someone else can do that.
3: Two things in that that are so important. One, everything that you just talked about was all about having a choice. Like everything you said was a cho- Like you talked about the choices that you made throughout that process versus mm. I felt like I had – I was being forced to do this and I I had no choice. I was being told what to do. Was, I made a choice based on actually looking inward at myself. Like that's so important. And then the other part that I, I think people need to really hear is that when you do make that choice to not have your own biological – children a lot of times that opens up spaces that are so especially now necessary for our country slash world to continue to actually function like there has to be people that had the capacity for you to do that like there has to be so if you if you just did the thing and had Four kids of your own, like that would have never been an option. And there's a big, what would happen to the girls that you now have with you, which I'm sure there's such an impact on their life that you're making. So it all comes down to like one, the choice. And then also, again, like the small mindedness, I think we'd accidentally fall into because, well, why why would I have to question these things that people are telling me? And you don't have to question them. But I think what I'm hearing in all of this conversation is it's actually really helpful to question things.
4: And because we need all kinds of kinds. And so if we're all following the same script, I think we just all get mired in our own worlds rather than, again, experiencing what I think are like the the win-win moments of being human, where our mutual needs, because we're actually not able to cultivate and curate and control our lives perfectly, those spaces where like the mutual needs meet and it feels like a win-win to both people. Now, I'm not suggesting that it felt like a win to my girls. Um, they certainly wished they could have returned home, and we wished likewise. But there were other ways in which it felt like, well, if this were the reality, though, there's something that they add to our lives that we had been longing for for a really long time, like this this more visceral connection to our neighbors and people. And the heartbeat of our community, like we were just very cut off from that because of our social location. And then obviously we thought, yeah, we did think like, I I hope this is useful to their birth family, that they are being adopted by people that want to keep a relationship going, who are not trying to replace them. Our girls don't even call us mom and dad because of where they were, how old they were. When they came to us, like I hope, there's something about our, <laughs> our not trying to adopt them and act as if we are their only parents that is life giving too to their birth family in this really hard, impossible situation. And when I see those in life, those are like those are like the holy moments to me when it feels like something really hard is actually like uh, meeting mutual needs or feels like both of you sort of lucked
3: out in coming together. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, okay. And one last thing I wanna say before uh, we kind of close this out is something I also have heard throughout this that I think isn't talked about or even talked about in a powerful way is you saying like I'm a low capacity person, like I can't take on that much. I just wanna highlight that at the end of this because I think a lot of people listening might really connect to that. And for a lot of people that might connect to that, that that could have been a really like shameful experience before. And I know that I'm somebody who has run myself into the ground trying to be a high high functioning, do it all all the time, never stop. And then I realized like, oh, my gosh, (laughs) one, I don't enjoy this. And two, if I want to do good work, like as a therapist, if I want to do really good work as a therapist, I can't see 10 clients in a day. I can't even see eight. And there are some people that are like, yeah, I see 12 clients. And I'm like, oh, can't do that. Some days I can only see four. And so I think that na- needs to be kind of highlighted because if you are somebody who's feels like more like I have less energy in that way, that is like an okay thing. And it doesn't mean that you don't have the capacity to do good things. Yes. Yeah. So, I'm so you. glad
4: you highlighted that. Yeah. Yes. I think, especially with the overwhelm that our country is experiencing uh, following the news cycle, following the pandemic, just following a lot of personal griefs I know have happened in people's lives over the last couple of years. Permission to be low capacity temporarily, permanently, seasonally, like it would make so much sense if you needed to set a lot of things down or not take a lot of things on right now. And that is a perfectly good reason to not become a mother, to look at the world and say, I'm really overwhelmed by what's happening. I really don't think I can cultivate another life that's not already here. So I'm going to focus on what's in front of me and be faithful to that. That's a beautiful way of being in the world.
3: Yeah, and that's a beautiful way to end this. So can you just, for everybody that's listening that wants to connect with you, can you tell us where the best places to find you and the best place to find your book?
4: Yes, you can find my book anywhere books are sold. But particularly if you have a local bookstore you love and they don't carry it, ask them to carry it and tell them that it's like the best parenting, not parenting book <laughs> you've ever read or want to read. And then you can also find me at ErinSlane.com. And you can't find me on Instagram for the next month or so because I'm setting it all down. I'm doing one less thing. So I will be back. Um, It will be back eventually, but it's at Hey Erin Lane. If you want to follow along there or my newsletter where um, I say I'm celebrating the less shiny bits of a life well lived.
3: Oh, I love that. Okay. I'll be getting that. Well, thank you. I love this. This was amazing. And I can't wait to read your book now. And I'm kind of glad I have this backstory before I get into the depths of it. So thank you so much.
4: Cool, Kat. Thanks for you and what you do in the world. Thank you.